Welcome to Displaced. I'm Grant Gordon. And I'm Ravi Guramurthy, and we're your co-hosts on the show. This is the podcast that you should be listening to if you care about humanitarian crises and how to stop them. This is a partnership between the Vox Media Podcast Network and the International Rescue Committee. And for those of you who are new to the show, this is where we talk to humanitarians, foreign policymakers about the causes and consequences of displacement. So before we hop into Nazneen Ash, we just want to let you know that we recorded this episode before the presidential determination on how many refugees will be let into this country. But this is the exact episode to listen to to understand how to think about those numbers and put the presidential determination in context. Refugee resettlement, as is well known, has become one of the targets of the Trump administration. And not in the modern era of refugee resettlement has any administration so thoroughly gutted the refugee resettlement regime. For the past few decades, the United States has resettled roughly half of the total number of refugees that have been resettled globally, roughly 70,000, 80,000 refugees before the Trump administration started. But those numbers have been drastically decreased under this administration. In real terms, only 25,000 refugees were admitted in 2017, and so far only 8,000 have been resettled in 2018. And those numbers only tell half the story. The number of Muslim refugees entering the US plummeted by 94% between 2016 and 2017. And the number of Syrian refugees resettled in the US in 2018 hovers in the double digits. And the American political climate around refugees and immigration is so toxic that since President Trump was elected, over 27,000 asylum seekers have crossed into Canada from the US overland, up from 2,000 people in 2016. So to understand this moment and why it's so important, you have to understand that the wider debate, including the full benefits of refugee resettlement in terms of foreign policy, security or economic reasons, as well as also the counter arguments. Even if we don't agree, um, one of the things we get into in this uh, conversation is what are the logic and arguments against resettlement and how are they changing over time? To take us through the arguments, we sit down with Nazanin Ash, the Vice President of Global Policy and Advocacy at the International Rescue Committee, who's been working directly with the current administration to make the case for resettlement, and with that front row seat, understands exactly what's going on. Naz has got extensive experience on these issues prior to joining the IRC. She was a visiting policy fellow at the Centre for Global Development, served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Bureau of Near Eastern Affairs at the State Department, and also worked in the policy planning staff at State. I uh, I really enjoyed this interview. I've been working on issues of refugee resettlement over the past two years and have generally grappled with a lot of questions around resettlement policy and how to think about it broadly as well as in this historical moment in which there's broader anti-refugee sentiments and backlash happening globally. And this was actually an interview that changed my mind, um, particularly on some of the And that doesn't that happen, let's be honest. I never do. It's really mind. hard to change Grant's mind. Uh Despite this, professing to be evidence-based, you know. What? What'd you say? I couldn't hear you. This actually changed my mind, um, particularly in some of the ways I think about the economics of resettlement as well as the security dimensions. Um, I really enjoyed this interview, and we hope you do too. So without further ado, here is Nazni Nash. Naz, we are so excited to have you on Displace today. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. 
So in this episode, we are going to be talking about refugee resettlement from all angles. This is a moment where it's really crucial. A presidential determination is going to come across in the coming weeks about the number of refugees we're going to allow in for the next year. And I think it's pretty well known that over the past two years, the Trump administration has really begun to tear apart refugee resettlement. And it's got a lot of headlines, which has been great. And with you at the center of the fight for the IRC in terms of policy advocacy, I want to start by asking you, what surprises you most about how the arguments have evolved over the past two years about refugee resettlement that people may not know when they read the headlines? You know, first and foremost, our humanitarian interest, our long tradition of being humanitarian leaders, you know, central to the founding of our country, um, central to our policy orientation for decades, a bipartisan tradition of humanitarian leadership. I think that's well enough known. I think the other aspects that, um, that people don't know as well is refugee policy and how it serves our strategic um, global national security, foreign policy interests. Um, conflict is incredibly destabilizing. The movements of people are incredibly destabilizing. And you consider, you know, over 5 million Syrians displaced into neighboring countries. Um, they're taking on um, tremendous costs, and, and those costs are measured both in terms of resources, but also in terms of domestic stability, regional stability in hosting these populations. It matters to U.S. policy for these uh, neighboring countries to be generous in hosting refugee populations, to keep their borders open, um, to provide protection and safety to refugees, and not to force their return prematurely, because that can be incredibly uh, destabilizing, and that can um, amplify the consequences of conflict. That's really helpful to kind of put it in a framework because I think the conversations around refugee resettlement here often forget what's on the other side outside of our country. They're domestically focused. Right? That's right. Those are the arguments. And we're going to come back to those strategic arguments and, and pull those apart and explain those a bit more. But I wanted to pull on one thing you said that I think is really interesting, which is Refugee resettlement has historically been a bipartisan issue. Um, and with the Trump administration in the 2016 election, became polarized in a way that it just had not been before. From your perspective, what's driven the polarization of refugee resettlement? Why mm. did it lose its bipartisan support? Mm -hmm. And d d was it just because of Trump? Because it's easy to sort of attribute everything to that uh, election. But does it reflect a wider and longer term process? Yes and no is my answer to that question. Um, you know, the refugee backlash is something that we see uh, see taking place globally. So there's uh, there's what's happening in Europe, you know, and of course in these countries of first refuge that you know host the vast majority of refugees. Um, but certainly, what is very distinguishing about uh, the Trump administration is we've never had the bully pulpit of the president taking on refugees and attacking refugees and refugee policy in the way that the Trump administration has done. And I think that's really given voice to what had been, you know, more of a um, isolated, you know, minority 
minority voice in the United States um, that had, you know, contested refugee policy. But, you know, refugee policy had for a long time been the purview of political elites, policy experts, a bipartisan tradition, the highest refugee admissions levels happening under Reagan and, you know, the first president Bush, um, policy leaders, political leaders who recognized both the humanitarian and strategic imperative of refugee admissions um, and a bipartisan consensus on the importance of supporting refugee admissions. You know, refugees have never actually polled particularly high across any population, right? There's only been a couple times in our history, notably post, uh, you know, when the wall was coming down in Europe and sort of the efforts to support those um, fleeing communist countries. You know, that was the first time refugees polled over 50 percent domestically here in the United States. So, you know, what's what's really been different is to have this level of political leadership at the level of the president take on refugees and uh, promoting a very toxic narrative about refugees, you know, at the level of the presidency. I think it's absolutely fascinating that we had so much refugee resettlement support amongst elites during the Reagan and Bush mm-hmm. era. Hashtag <laughs> Reagan for refugees. That's the <laughs> argument. Um, but if you go back to that era, where did it come from? Where did that elite level support emerge? So I attribute it to two things. One, again, you know, a longstanding tradition around the humanitarian imperative and humanitarian leadership. Um, the refugee admissions program, you know, refugees are those who are identified as such because their lives are at risk because of religious persecution, ethnic persecution, ideological persecution. You know, these are all um, factors that the U.S. has a long tradition of standing up for. So again, you know, if you look back to the Reagan era, if you look back to, um, to you know, the role he played in combating um, communism, you know, demonstrating the U.S.'s ideological support for those who were rejecting communist ideologies was central to the strategy and refugee admissions and high numbers of refugee admissions for those fleeing communist ideologies was part and parcel of, you know, the soft diplomacy and and um, and the strategies that were being deployed against communists. You know, what I think is so, um, uh, what I think is both heartbreaking and a grave strategic era, um, looking at the current policies, um, are the way in which we're turning our backs on that policy approach, which is to say that so many of the people seeking refugee admission today are those who are fleeing precisely the terrorist ideologies that we seek to reject. You know, with the Trump administration's refugee policies, there's been a dramatic decline in the admission of Muslim refugees and over 80% decline in the admission of Muslim refugees. Those are Muslims, again, rejecting precisely the terrorist ideologies that we seek to combat globally. Um, They're people whose lives are at risk because they have spoken up against ISIS. And we have documented, because the IRC's presence overseas, you know, we know what um, terrorists have inflicted on those who have rejected their ideologies. Um, so, you know, these are the people we want to support um, for the same uh, for the same reasons that Reagan and Bush stood up for those rejecting communist ideologies, and instead we're saying no to them. So, one of the things that I grapple with in, in thinking about kind of current sentiment and where it's going, both here in the U.S. and globally, is how to distinguish 
arguments and feelings towards broader economic migration that's happening right now, particularly in Europe, as well as kind of the way that it's being perceived in the U.S. from anti-refugee sentiment in particular. And there's not a lot of public opinion polling on this, but some of the ones that have been conducted show that there's substantially higher levels of support for refugees than normal economic migration for, I think, the reason that you're pointing to, which is these are populations fleeing persecution. And I think that uh, from one of the public opinion polls that was done in Europe um, by uh, researchers at Stanford, when they changed the frame and asked, how do you support an economic migrant versus, you know, a refugee fleeing persecution, support went up 15 percentage mm-hmm. points. Mm-hmm. So they're really radical differences. And so when you think about the U.S. policy landscape and making the case for refugees, how do you think about it in that broader landscape of concerns or fears or anxieties over broader economic migration? Right. Well, I think, you know, I think we see the same distinctions uh, here. So, you know, there's there's consistent support. Like, I think we find consistent majority support um, in polling that the United States should be a place um, that provides safety um, for those fleeing persecution and, and violence. That's a tradition that Americans do hold dear. They want to know that we're doing it safely and they want to know that we're doing it in a way um, that's not presenting um, an economic burden. Um, both of those points can be well proven with the refugee admissions program. Its safety has been well proven, and its economic benefit to um, to the U.S. Um, has been proven. Um, so there's consistent support for that, and we see the same distinctions here. Uh, it's also the case that um, you know we should be a place that provides protection and that provides safety for those fleeing violence. Um, you know, through multiple means. So the distinction of the refugee admissions program is that people's need for safety is identified overseas. So their refugee status is identified overseas. Um, They cannot be identified as a refugee if they've been involved in major criminal activity, if they've been parties to a conflict. Those are all factors that are considered before you're given refugee status. And so what's distinguishing about the program is that it's, you know, regular and that it's orderly. There are people whose safety needs have been identified. They go through a very orderly, you know, vetting process. And I think that is different and feels different to um, populations both here and in Europe than um, people showing up on your borders seeking safety. Um, Although the safety needs of those, you know, showing up at our borders um, also deserve careful consideration and positive policy because that's just a different pathway for seeking protection. To what extent do you think that um, we now need to be turning our attention more towards building support back up from the bottom up rather than those elite level conversations? And how fundamentally does that mean we have to change the way we work? And I'm asking that because I think it actually has quite significant implications, not just for the arguments we make about resettlement, but how we even do it. Um, So if you take, for instance, Canada, which has a very different way of doing resettlement, it involves sponsors, families, uh, church groups supporting refugees. That is a way of actually getting uh, civil society really mobilised in a big way. And it it feels 
from first principles, more likely that we'll build that bottom-up support if you have networks of people uh, looking after refugees than if we just make rational arguments about how refugee resettlement is good for foreign policy, it's safe, it's economically beneficial. Um, I mean, what, one fact that I find amazing on this is uh, I was at a Centre for Global Development meeting recently and they said that 7% of Canadian citizens have uh, resettled a refugee. And if you imagine the impact that has, particularly not just on those people directly, but all their friends and family who they may talk about this uh, too, it feels like a, a profound way of, of, of building uh, traction on this issue. I think constituency support for refugees is deep across the United States and is a resource that uh, refugee advocates need to tap into more significantly as we rebuild and and really uh, create a constituency for refugee policy that, um, while it's there, had not been previously mobilized in part because we didn't have these threats to the ad refugee admissions program. You know, if you consider that there are refugee resettlement offices um, in over 300 communities across the United States, in both red and blue states, um, and around every single one of those agencies, you have a community of churches, schools, local organizations, um, local political leaders that turn out for refugees and take great pride um, in the support that they offer for refugees. You know, that's a community that hasn't been asked to take political action in support of refugees. And that's been a real change um, that uh, we've been seeking to execute over the last couple of years. You know, turn your practical... So just to be clear, you think that the, uh, the reservoir of support is there, you just need to mobilise that uh, group to actually take political action rather than what I was arguing for, which is actually we need to build a deeper uh, support amongst the population by changing the way perhaps we do resettlement to get them more directly involved in the process. Yes, I think there's a reservoir of support that's there. I don't think we need to make choices between those strategies. Mm -hmm. I think that introducing new ways for uh, communities to show their support for refugees can help broaden and deepen the support. But I do think the reservoir of support is there, and we've seen it in uh, the response to the mobilization that we've sought to do over the last year. It's, uh, it's wild. I've actually looked at the data um, as we were thinking about different types of programming that we could do in resettlement. And literally, both after Trump gets elected and then after the travel ban happens, if you're looking at just the number of applicants over time, there's these huge spikes, literally by the thousands. By the thousands. By th um, of volunteers who want to engage, um, which is, I think, an it's indicative of the potential to create more of a base That's as well right. as do more of the programming. But I do think they're two different axioms, which are, which are important that can be self-reinforcing. That's right. Um, but, do, but do those volunteers actually want to take political action? Are they prepared to go and lobby and and uh, or, or do they actually want to take more direct action with refugees in their communities? And 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 how are you finding that process of converting them into political activists? 
So uh, yes, they want to do both, right? So they want to do um, they want to do both. They want to be part of a political process, um, and I think that that is the opportunity to grasp out of our current political climate, right? So if you look at the history of um, of major political and policy change, it is often born out of these oppositional moments, right? So I mentioned that refugees had never polled particularly high across the general population. What's interesting about what's happening now is it's really sort of planted progressive support for refugees, right? So support among progressives for refugees is incredibly high. You know, I think that, you know, what we want to do is return it to its bipartisan tradition. So we wouldn't want to leave it there, but it's forcing people to take a position. And so, you know, they're taking political positions on refugee policies. And, you know, one of the things we did over the last year was really launch IRC's first effort in sort of public mobilization, sort of using digital advocacy tools. And the findings were really, um, were really intriguing, which is to say that first we saw huge response rates to our requests for people to take action, response rates that exceeded the average for typical advocacy movements. So it really indicated that people were interested in planting their flag for refugees, even when there are a number of so many issues to contest during the Trump administration. And some of those issues are even closer to home. If you think about healthcare reform or tax reform, there are a number of issues that, you know, had more domestic significance, if you would, but people were eager to plant their flag on behalf of refugees and take advocacy actions on their behalf. And the other really interesting finding is that um, people in red states were mobilized to take action at a higher rate even than those in blue states. So on a per capita basis, we mobilized advocates in red states on an even at an even greater level than those in blue. So it gets to this point about, you know, how people want to be identified in these moments, in these sort of oppositional moments where, you know, they're they're driven to take a stand and a political stand about what they believe in. And we find a deep reservoir of support for refugees that can be mobilized. I want to pull out for a second because we get to do this interview at a moment where there's a broad debate over the presidential determination of how many refugees are going to be allowed into this country next year. And so this is a really crucial inflection point for refugee resettlement. And I want to unpack the arguments that are happening in the space together um, and go through them. And you started to uh, pull at some of them, the foreign policy arguments, the economic arguments, the moral arguments, the foundational arguments of who we are as a country and take them in turn. Um, So we've spent a lot of time talking before about the foreign policy arguments for engaging in refugee resettlement. And I'd love you to make the argument that you are making in the rooms. What's the foreign policy reason to increase or just even sustain refugee resettlement here in the U.S.? Traditionally, this uh, program has served a number of purposes, as I mentioned, both humanitarian and strategic. And I think one of the things that's really interesting and not well known about the refugee admissions program is that uniquely among any of our immigration pathways, refugee admissions uh, and the analysis on um, how many refugees should we should admit lies um, with the Secretary of State. And the 1980 Refugee Act asked the Secretary of State to make his or her recommendation on the basis of the humanitarian foreign policy and um, 
strategic and security concerns of the United States. And so traditionally, the way we've made the judgment about refugee admissions has been in examining, you know, major crisis hotspots, like where do we have major humanitarian crises underway? Where do um, host governments, our allies, need help because they're hosting the vast majority of refugees? So we have traditionally leveraged refugee admissions in order to secure outcomes like open borders so that refugees can find safety from conflict, um, uh, like um, uh, access to jobs and education that allow refugees to rebuild their lives in host countries so they're not making onward movements, dangerous secondary movements of the type that we saw in 2015 and 2016 and still where you saw major refugee movements onward from, you know, Jordan, Turkey, et cetera, to Europe. So, you know, we have, we leverage refugee admissions for a small number of refugees to secure extremely significant um, outcomes overseas. So, And how does that actually happen? So, do we engage in direct negotiations with particular countries uh, relating to the numbers of uh, refugees that will be resettled in the U.S.? Um, yes, absolutely. And I think the biggest example of that is the leader summit that was really led and driven by the United States in 2016. You know, that summit brought wealthy nations together and um, many of the host nations who um, were low and developing, uh, low and middle income countries that host the vast majority of refugees um, to negotiate a set of outcomes that could help achieve greater regional stability and sustainability of refugee populations. Um, so what happened in 2016 is led by the U.S. and its commitments and led by very aggressive diplomacy from the U.S., you had wealthy nations come to the table um, with a commitment to double resettlement slots, um, so to double the number of refugees that they would take from host countries. And I think what was especially significant about that um, doubling of refugee admissions by wealthy nations is that it included a whole host of countries who had not previously had refugee admissions programs. So we expanded the number of countries that have resettlement programs to 37, which is a really significant outcome. You know, that um, and, and together with a commitment to increase humanitarian aid by 30 percent, those commitments on the part of wealthy nations were leveraged to secure um, commitments by host countries, neighboring countries, to increase access to jobs and education for refugees. 17 countries agreed to increase access to education. You know, 15 countries agreed to increase access to work. And again, it's often these constraints on refugee populations. Very few countries allow refugees a legal right to work. Very few countries allow refugee children access to education. You know, and the consequences of that are obviously extraordinary in terms of human potential, but also very destabilizing. You know, put yourself in the situation, you know, and we can look at the example of Syrian refugees and what happened in 2015 and 2016. You know, three years into the conflict, um, you know, many refugees had run out their savings. They weren't allowed to work. They couldn't put their kids in school and humanitarian assistance was dropping. And so many of them decided to take on the dangerous on 
downward journeys to third countries, to Europe. Um, and that had incredibly destabilizing effects, not only regionally, but also politically, right? Draw the line from that refugee crisis to Brexit. Like that's, those are the sort of foreign policy implications that so, but, you can identify here. So that's an example though of humanitarian policy being changed by US commitment to resettlement. Right. But what about, if you're trying to convince hawks of why resettlement policy right. matters, you've got to try and make the argument that it has wider benefits to foreign policy interests uh, more broadly. So right. tell us about that. Right. So now let's look at the reverse. Those were the commitments we saw in 2016. So now let's look at what's happened um, since the Trump administration's retreat, right? So far from doubling resettlement commitments, there's been an almost 50% decline in global resettlement slots. Many of those countries who had agreed to start resettlement programs have not. Um, far from um, proceeding with those commitments to um, education, to, to increasing access to education and work, only two countries have made progress on their commitments on education and work. More significantly, and to your point, Ravi, the danger that we see and that we've really, you know, that we see up close, um, we see a dangerous increase in forced returns, a dangerous increase in closed borders, and the incredible both humanitarian impact of that and destabilizing impact of that. And I'll give you a number of examples. Um, you know, there have been, you know, there are 2 million Afghans who have been forced or encouraged to return from Pakistan and Iran since 2015. That's at a time when we are increasing our troop levels and seeking to achieve a, st a stability in Afghanistan. You know, these are largely men between the ages of 15 and 25. They were born in Pakistan, you know, they don't have community ties or community roots in Afghanistan. You know, returning them without community ties roots is risky. You had um, the Kenyan government threaten to shut down Dadaab and return 250,000 Somalis, again, most of whom were born and raised in camps in Kenya with no community ties in Somalia. You had, you know, the Kenyan government threatened to return 250,000 Somalis to an unstable rebuilding Somalia. In fact, you know, the research will tell you that of the 15 largest um, uh, returns of populations since 1990, a third of them has resulted in the restart of conflict. I think it's uh, worth distinguishing two mechanisms that you're talking about there on the foreign policy side. One is the U.S.'s leverage um, in uh, diplomatic engagements, negotiations with other countries. And then there's another mechanism through which resettlement is actually functioning as a release valve for countries that would otherwise just be burning such high rates of refugees that they themselves, uh, you know, become on the brink um, and that 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 has interest. And I want to just focus on the leverage one because it's it's an issue that I grapple with a lot. I mm -hmm. think it's, it's it has the feature of like a broader set of uh, foreign policy goals that like it's about the symbolic power oftentimes. Yes. Um, and there's not a lot of empirical evidence on this because it's really hard to study like cross-nationally, right? We have a set of anecdotes, but it's it's hard to know what to make of it. So one, I'm curious if you can talk about like what you think, what do you think there's compelling evidence at a macro level, but even more so, how do you think about it in the context of Trump's broader general retreat from multilateral institutions? Because one interpretation of what's happening right now is that pulling back from refugee resettlement is, you know, 
causing all of this ruckus. And the other like interpretation is like, actually, that doesn't matter that much. Like, you're, you're missing the bigger picture. Look at what Trump's doing. Like, don't worry about refugee resettlement. So I think the, the interesting thing about, Grant, what you just said is that uh, if you look at the context for this debate, the US has historically been the leader in global resettlement. Half of global resettlement numbers were conducted by the US. And now it's going from that leadership position back to the sort of average, if you like, or it's now within the pack. Now, that is obviously damaging. It's hugely damaging for all the reasons you articulated earlier, Nazanin, when you were discussing the impact on uh, changing humanitarian policy in other countries. However, if you sort of compare that to other ways in which the US manages to achieve foreign policy influence through aid budgets, for instance, could you not argue that going from, say, 100,000 to 25,000 is significant, but it could be counteracted by other levers that the US government can pull, like aid budgets? Or is, as Grant said, the symbolic value, That's right. that sense that we're prepared to do this, we're prepared to take our share, has almost disproportionate impact and the retreat is, is producing a sort of license for other countries to, to really row back. That's right. Um, and I'd say it's really the latter. Um, there's both material and symbolic significance here. So, um, you know, uh, host nation leadership, I mean, they have said out loud um, that they should not be expected to do what wealthy nations won't. Um, and again, they are already shouldering really disproportionate responsibility. Um, you know, our political narrative would have you believe that wealthy nations host the vast majority of refugees. You know, going back to the beginning of our conversation, you know, Turkey, Jordan, Lebanon, you know, they they host 5 million Syrian refugees. The U.S. and Canada together host 100,000. There are 10 countries with 2.5% of global GDP that host over half the refugee population. Almost 90% of refugees are hosted in low- and middle-income countries struggling to meet the needs of their citizens. But in the context so when, of that tiny well, number that the U.S. takes that's on, right. to what extent does it matter whether the U.S. goes from a tiny it's number to even tiny number? It's such a good number? question. It's such a good question. And I think again, what people don't realize is that, um, you know, it's not every refugee that's referred for resettlement. So there are over 25 million refugees. Um, there are only one and a half million of the most vulnerable that are identified for resettlement. And the reason that population matters to host countries, to neighboring countries, um, and the refugee populations they're hosting, it's, it's because the populations they can't care for, um, that they um, that that um, that offer the most relief to them in um, in uh, resettling those populations. So we're talking about um, widowed mothers who don't have access to work in those countries. We're talking about orphans that present costs. We're talking about people with medical conditions, a child with autism. We're talking about um, uh, gay and lesbian refugees and pr at particular risk. We're talking about religiously persecuted minorities that those countries may not be able to safely care for. We're talking about people who assisted U.S. missions and troops abroad who, again, like these countries cannot, you know, safely care for. So it's either because those countries can't guarantee their safety or because it presents tremendous costs to them in being able to um, provide for their safety and care because of particular conditions that they faced. That's what we mean when we say the most vulnerable are referred for resettlement. And so it's deeply meaningful 
to those countries, both symbolically, a symbol of solidarity, something that they can take to their host populations um, and saying that this is a, 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 a shared responsibility globally and materially in the populations that are served through resettlement. You know, so if you um, if you consider um, two years ago, we took 20,000 refugees from our ally Jordan. This year, we've taken just over 40. You know, so similarly, Lebanon, we've taken just over 20. You know, last year we took almost a thousand. You know, so, you know, the declines are really significant. And again, you know, house country leadership, they're saying out loud, why should we be obligated to do this when wealthy nations won't? And so the risk is in forced returns and in closed borders and in denial of rights and access for refugees to jobs and education. Okay, so I want to take us to the economics argument now that we've made the foreign policy argument. I think a common counter that you see, at least coming from the administration or people concerned with bringing in refugees, is that this is really costly, right? Like you have to process them, you have like they have to travel here, you provide them social services, you provide them resettlement services. Is this an argument that when you're engaging with the administration comes up and, and how do you think about this? Yes, it is an argument that comes up, and it's an argument that's been presented by, um, you know, some of you know, there's the, uh, some of the institutions, you know, more ideologically aligned with the administration. And I think there's a fundamental flaw in the analysis. Um, in the analysis, and and the, actually, there are several fundamental flaws in the analysis uh, to pick them apart. The first is in the lack of recognition that refugee resettlement serves those who cannot be safely cared for overseas, right? So this argument that we should just quote unquote take care of them over there and not over here. I mean, we're talking about the populations, the small proportion of refugees that are referred for resettlement because they cannot be safely cared for in those host countries. That's the one. Um, that's, you know, that's issue one. Issue two, it fails to recognize the protracted nature of crisis. So, you know, given the protracted na nature of crisis, given the fact that over two two-thirds of humanitarian assistance is, and now goes to humanitarian crises that have been ongoing for 10 years or more. Um, you know, it fails to recognize the fact that we're giving year-over-year -year humanitarian aid um, to support refugee populations overseas. And comparing that to point number three, to the one-time upfront costs of resettlement. So, you know, resettlement is what we call a durable solution for refugees, right? You're, you're providing one time upfront costs um, to support their resettlement and integration into the United States. Um, and then, um, and, you know, the economic studies demonstrate um, that what refugees contribute to the economy, you know, far outweighs those upfront costs of their, um, of their immediate resettlement. I mean, we're talking about populations that have to pay back their plane tickets. So um, it's a, you know, it's a small upfront cost that delivers ultimately economic benefit uh, to the United States. I think there's an interesting debate also to have around like, do we see like, should we be talking about costs or not? But 
On the other side, I do think it's important to say that a lot of the data that you're seeing at least come out in research and even from the government actually then evidences benefits. So if I, if I remember correctly, I think Trump mandated a review of the cost of yes. refugees and uh, a, like a United States study came out basically from, from the Department of Health and Human Services that found that refugees brought in $63 billion more, more. in government That's revenue right. over the past decade. That's and then right. that study was quashed. Yes. Um, a public academic study by Evans and all that we will put up in the show notes shows that on average, after about 10 or 11 years, refugees themselves become economic net contributors paying in more to tax revenue than they take out in social services. That's right. So there's evidence that they are economically beneficial to countries. Is when you When you kind of argue that today? Like, is that something that you find resonates? Is this something that sits with people? Is Does it just become a debate over, like, methodology and data that then, you know, studies become polarized themselves? You know, I actually think, you know, what I see as a distinct difference from the arguments being um, made by the administration this year versus last is um, I don't necessarily see those economic arguments playing as much of a role. You know, I think there is recognition that any credible study of costs and any credible study that compares refugee support overseas versus domestic resettlement um, needs to both consider um, the protracted nature of crisis versus the one-time cost of refugee resettlement and needs to consider both the economic benefits refugees generate and contribute as well as the costs of their immediate support and integration. So I see that um, taking hold. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I see a different set of arguments, um, driving, um, the refugee admissions conversation this year. It's interesting what you said about, um, how the arguments that the administration are using, uh, to rebut the case for refugee resettlement have changed. Yes. Because um, if you think back to the, the first uh, arguments against it, it was around safety, that they couldn't uh, guarantee the, the safety of the, uh, of the process. Obviously, they've now conducted a review mm -hmm. and presumably they now own the process so they can't make that argument as well as they, they could before. So what are the new arguments they're using to justify uh, their policy? So the new arguments that I hear um, relate to the fact that just. Uh, relate to the low arrivals of refugees that we've seen this year. So the administration set a ceiling of 45,000 admissions. And then um, because of a series of pauses on refugee admissions as they reviewed security vetting procedures um, and because of other bureaucratic red tape that they've introduced, um, arrivals, you know, three quarters of the way through the uh, fiscal year are actually at 18,000, which is a remarkable number. Um, and we anticipate that they'll likely only admit around 21,000 refugees this year. So essentially half the ceiling. Um, uh, and that's in the context of that being a historically low ceiling, the lowest ceiling we've ever had since 1980. Um, and the argument that the administration, I hear some within the administration making is, you know, the admissions level we've had this year, the sort of 20,000 or so refugees, you know, 
isn't that therefore indicative of the capacity we have to process refugees? Um, and I think that's absolutely false. Um, I think the low arrival numbers are a function of nearly seven months worth of pause on refugee admissions and then the introduction of new vetting procedures. You know, those pauses have been lifted and new procedures are in place. Agencies know what they're doing. And I think it's quite impossible to make the case that a country like the United States, um, with all of our resources and all of our capacity, um, wouldn't be able to meet a ceiling of at least 45,000 refugees. So this is a little bonkers to it's me. It's totally because, bonkers. Because it's what's really clear over the past year is that the administration has taken a strategy of strangling the bureaucracy yes. that facilitates refugee exactly. resettlement. Exactly. I actually think that it would then make the argument that the resulting of the strangulation of the bureaucracies they did is the reason that you can't resettle more. And even so, even so, so think about, think about the, speaking to bureaucratic strangulation, think about the bureaucratic strangulation um, that happened after 9-11. We, you know, the United States was creating the Department of Homeland mm -hmm. Security. It was tremendously disruptive, right? All, a number of agencies were being pushed together into a single agency, like, all of our all of our admissions programs, you know, were under review. Every pathway to the United States was under review. There was a tremendous amount of churn and change um, uh, um, with respect to all of the pathways into the United States and with respect to the agencies that um, oversee um, those processes. Yet in the first year after 9-11 in 2002, we still managed to admit 27,000 refugees. And to great credit to George W. Bush, even in the aftermath of 9-11, he never reduced the refugee ceiling. So the ceiling remained at 70,000. Because we were creating the Department of Homeland Security and reviewing all of these procedures, you know, admissions, actual admissions dropped to 27,000. They were at 28,000 the year after, and they were back up to 50,000 by 2004. I make this point because it's not a function of capacity. Mm -hmm. It's a function of political will. You know, it's, you know, if the U.S. decides it wants to maintain its commitment, there's nothing that stands in its way. The quote-unquote capacity constraints that the refugee admissions program is experiencing now are entirely a function of policy choices the administration has made. So I want to ask just one final argument that's put by conservatives on this particular issue, and that is that um, the cost of refugee resettlement in the US or in Europe is far, far greater than the cost of, say, supporting somebody within their first stop country. And that's an argument that's made. And, and I know that there was a paper last year by Collier and Betts that estimate that the cost of providing the necessary services for a refugee that's made it to Europe is 130 times more than the cost of providing the same services for refugees remaining in their host countries. So that's a tricky argument. I'm interested in how you... Um, how you respond to that particular point. Let me let me come in here to see if I understood what I think you were saying, which I think changes the argument a bit, which is that, it, that calculation assumes that every refugee is the exact same. Whereas the 1.1.5 million, 1.9 million who are deemed in need of refugee resettlement are so vulnerable that actually that calculation doesn't make sense and that services there aren't necessarily going to be available. Right. So... If, is that the kind of crux of the counter for refugee resettlement, right? If we were just actually thinking about maybe resettling not those most in need, 
just your average Joe, who happens to be a refugee, of course. Does the Collier bets argument, does the cost argument make more sense? Does it hold more weight? I think it's really hard to answer that because it's such a hypothetical. We have, I mean, we have individuals that are outside the norm that represent extraordinary need, um, whether it's the psychosocial services women might need because they've experienced, you know, tremendous gender-based violence and rape, whether it's, you know, their, um, you know, whether it's a, you know, a heart condition that can't be addressed um, in a host country environment. You know, so, um, so exactly as you said, there are refugee populations that, um, that have needs um, financial and otherwise in terms of providing for their safety and security that exceed what host government, you know, host governments can provide and, and, and that are not consistent with the, with the average. And the other argument I'd make is like, there's not a, there's also the issue that there's not, um, a financial solution to Mm -hmm. providing for the safety of some of these refugees. So again, if you're talking about Mm-hmm. victims of torture or people who are fleeing like a particular type of ethnic or religious persecution, there's no financial solution to right. providing for their safety. They need to be removed from the situation in order to be safe. I think the other problem with the whole argument, though, is it only looks at costs. Yes. Because obviously, if you, as we've said before, uh, help someone resettle in this country or Europe, they're also going to become part of the labour market and contribute much more in terms of right. benefits. So, this goes, so you've got right. to look at both sides of the ledger. That's this right. Is, um, so this goes to the, you know, assessing upfront costs versus the fact that refugees that are resettled, you know, quickly integrate, become employed. So we know from our IRC work that 80% of refugees that participate in our economic programs are self-sufficient within six months. So like it's really about trying to compare upfront costs and then the benefits of their economic contribution, assessing the benefits of their economic contribution compared to what are protracted situations of year-over-year assistance. I want to start landing this plan by taking us through the last argument, which I think is part of the purview of the 1980 Act, which is the humanitarian uh, imperative to help these refugees. You're landing the plane by going back to 1980. We're going to be here all night. <laughs> Hashtag Reagan for refugees. <laughs> I'm saying can, again. We, can we please? <laughs> so, in a sense, I think the moral argument for resettling refugees is huge, right? You're yes. helping those who are, have no other option. There is no other durable solution. And I think it's important because, to me at least, and this is what I'm curious to get your thoughts on, the, foreign po- the strategic foreign policy argument can fall. The economics argument can fall. And we should still do this. Yes. They may work for us, which is really nice. Yes. But I think that you want to be in a space where you're thinking about refugee resettlement from that angle. Because yes. if it didn't work, then like it, you, you want to be coming from that grounds. Like That's a parallel right. that I think about oftentimes is like, it's really lucky that the CIA records found that torture was ineffective <laughs> because if torture was effective, but it's so morally abhorrent, we'd have a harder time thinking about it. But this is just the inverse of this, right? Like the foreign policy and economic arguments go our way. But like, even if they didn't, the moral argument that this is what you do is really important. So how do you think about that? And, and how does that shape at all the current debates you're having with the administration? Right. Grant, the point you're making is so important and and so true and right. 
Uh, you know, we have done this program uh, for decades. Americans have supported this program. The volunteers that turn out for this program, you know, those who are motivated to be politically active and support, um, you know, refugee admissions, they're doing it because of its humanitarian imperative, because it's the right thing to do, because we've been a country and we've been a people that have opened our arms to people who need safety. So, you know, that is the most important factor in, um, and the, and the, and the, and that should be the most important factor um, in uh, making decisions around refugee policy. Um, those are the arguments that, you know, those are part of the arguments that the U.S. government makes when it's overseas when it's trying to convince, you know, Bangladesh who absorbed, you know, a million refugees over the course of, you know, just several months. Um, you know, there's a humanitarian obligation to provide safety to a persecuted people. Um, you know, so that is exactly where we should start and exactly where we should end. Um, but, you know, the thing I would say is I don't see those humanitarian arguments carrying weight um, with this administration. I do think that uh, this administration has yet to reveal its humanitarian heart. Uh, so when you see, you know, not just the decline in refugee admissions, um, but the cancellation of the Central American Miners Program, you know, a program that allowed children who were at deep risk of violence um, to be identified and safely, legally transported to join refugees legally, to join relatives legally residing in the United States, you know, and that program was canceled for no reason that could be identified and canceled, you know, within a matter of days with little notice to those children and to those families. When you look at the fact that um, the administration has canceled um, temporary protected status for Hondurans, Salvadorans, Haitians, who again were legally, safely um, residing in the United States, working, contributing to the economy, almost 90% of them employed, you know, paying taxes, you know, and it's going to incur tremendous costs in the United States to deport those populations. You know, like what is the national security economic reason for um, for canceling those programs? So we see every humanitarian program um, under attack. So the arguments um, and the arguments that are carrying weight are those that demonstrate why there is a, um, a strategic um, benefit to the United States um, in pursuing these programs. But I make a distinction between the arguments carrying weight within the policy decision-making mm -hmm. circles versus the arguments that carry weight with the American people and the vast population um, that turns out it's support for refugees because it's the right thing to do. So finally, Naz, I know there'll be a lot of people who've been listening to this and are thinking, how can we help? How can we help preserve this incredible American tradition that you've so eloquently articulated? Um what are the two or three things you would suggest people can do at home? I think the number one thing I'd put on my list right now is engage your political leaders. Show your support for refugees. You can do it as an individual, but even better if you do it as part of a network. 
come to rescue.org, join our advocacy network. We'll send you information. We'll give you ways to engage your political leaders and to show your support for refugees. Um, Make this an issue as you cast your vote. Um, Test the humanitarian heart of the political leaders um, that you want to represent you and whether they'll stand up for these American ideals. And then volunteer, donate, tell your friends, you know, be your own political mobilizer. You know, don't act as an individual. Um, You know, tell these stories, relay the facts to your friends and your community members. You know, build your own community, your own constituency for humanitarian policy and for humanitarian leadership. Nazni Nash, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. We hope that you now understand all the arguments for refugee resettlement and that you can debunk all the arguments against refugee resettlement like a refugee resettlement debate ninja. (laughs) If you want any more on the topics we discussed on the episode today, check out our show notes on www.rescue.org. Backslash displaced. You were there. You were there. If you like what you hear every week, do help us grow by sharing the podcast or telling a friend to subscribe and subscribe yourself. We would love to hear from you. Uh, drop us a note at displaced at rescue.org. Tell us about who you'd like to see on the show, what conversations we should have. Uh, we would love to thank our team at the International Rescue Committee, including Alex Bandea, Ben Moskovitz, and Catherine Long. And a huge thank you to the Vox Media team. Our production unit includes associate producer Jelani Carter and senior producer Golda Arthur, who continues to put up with us. But this week, she's not even here listening to us tape this right now because she is so tired of putting up with us. Uh, a huge thank you to Jarrett Floyd and Griffin Tanner, of course. And it's important to note that Nishat Kurwa is our executive producer of audio. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you next week. Thank you. See you next week. Bye.